You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. church family. On this Palm Sunday, our sermon text for this morning is Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to make your way there to the letter of Galatians. Today we're going to pick up where we left off two Sundays ago. We're making our way through this sacred letter in a series called Freedom in Christ, the Glorious Gospel of Galatians. And I want to begin by reading the text this morning. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Church, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. But when Cephas, also known as Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James... He was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you... Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Today, I would like us to reflect on what I'm I'm calling the third step we must take towards fulfilling our gospel Mission. So far in this letter, we've already been introduced to two steps every church must take in being a faithful church and a fruitful church. Let me review what those two steps are before then we look at this third one. The first thing that every church must do to be a faithful and fruitful church is we must proclaim gospel truth. And we see that already in chapter 1. For example, in verse 11, Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Paul went around preaching the gospel, and he preached the gospel that was revealed to him by God. He didn't alter it. He didn't, it wasn't something he just came up with. He was faithful to proclaim the gospel. And any church that wants to be faithful and fruitful must be about gospel proclamation. But there's a second step, and we see it in chapter 2, verse 5. Not only must we proclaim gospel truth, we must preserve gospel truth. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Think about what Paul's saying and his whole reason for writing this letter. Not only did Paul go around preaching the gospel, he went to cities and villages and towns all throughout the region of Galatia proclaiming the gospel. But when he got word that the gospel he had preached was now being altered, 
He, he, he was zealous to preserve it. And he did everything he could to make sure that that gospel was not changed or altered or nothing about it eroded. But the message remained the same. And any faithful church that wants to be used by God must not only proclaim the gospel, we must be aware of things within our own hearts, our own lives, among other churches, and within culture that can erode the gospel message. Well, that brings us now to the third step. Not only must we proclaim gospel truth, preserve gospel truth, but we must apply gospel truth. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. See, it's not enough to preach and proclaim the gospel, to be people who fiercely defend the gospel, but yet the gospel doesn't affect the way we live. All three are necessary. And this passage this morning is going to highlight this truth about applying the gospel. If I was to summarize the point we can take away from Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through or 11 through 14, it would be this. The truth of the gospel must dictate and motivate the way we live our lives. That's the takeaway for this morning. That the truth of the gospel must dictate and motivate the way we live our lives. What I want to do the rest of our time is really unpack that thought. What, what does that mean? That the truth of the gospel is meant to dictate and motivate the truths of our lives. Well, I want to look at that by breaking this passage into two parts. Here's our outline for this morning. We're going to look at Peter's conduct, verses 11 through 13. And Paul's confrontation, verses verse 14. Let's begin with Peter's conduct, verses 11 through 13. And let me just take a moment to review so we understand what happened leading up to this. Because this is not some separate thought. This is, this is at a place in the letter we must understand what's been happening before. In the passage right before the one we just read, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, if you recall... From two weeks ago, the Apostle Paul informed us that on his second visit to Jerusalem, he, he met with the leaders of the early church, men like Peter, James, and John. Many, many years later, he finally sat down with them to have a meeting about his message and his ministry. And if you recall, Paul has spent a significant time at the front end of his letter defending his ministry. It's not until verse 15 of chapter 2 he begins to articulate the message. He spends two chapters defending his ministry before he can articulate the message. And why does he do that? Because he was being accused of being an imitation and not the real thing like the apostles. Somehow, those who were his opponents in Galatia, who were teaching false teaching, in order to discredit his message, they had to discredit him. And here's what they were saying. Paul, early on, you got the message from Peter, James, and John, and then you decided to go out and do your own thing. You decided you would start preaching that, that the law was no longer necessary for Gentiles, and that you would start preaching to Gentile. And Paul defends his ministry by informing the church in Galatia that he actually started his preaching his message 
about Christ to Gentiles way, way many years before he ever met with Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem. So that's their argument. He, he just throws down the facts and says, that's just untrue. It was many years that I had been preaching the message of the gospel to Gentiles before I ever met with these men, these pillars of the church, to talk about my message and my ministry. You see, Paul had received his message and his commission to be an apostle when Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul in a powerful and profound way on the road to Damascus. And when Paul finally did, many years later, meet with the leaders in Jerusalem, here's what we saw two weeks ago. We're informed that when he did meet with them, guess what they said? Paul, we we see God's work in your life. God's called us here. God's called you there. And they gave him, Paul says, the right hand of fellowship. They gave him the fist bump and said, brother, you're one of us. We, We have no concerns. So Paul's saying, not only is my opponent's timeline wrong, even when I did finally meet with the Jerusalem leaders, they had no concerns about the things I was doing or saying. But that's not all. Paul now includes this incident involving Peter and Antioch. And we discover here in verses 11 through 14 that Paul had to confront Peter publicly because of his actions towards the Gentiles. And why? Because it was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So what exactly happened in Antioch? I mean, this sounds like a pretty dicey situation. Paul publicly critiquing and bringing a degree of rebuke to Peter. What took place? Well, we can't say with absolute certainty all that happened because Paul limits what he shares with us. But we can carefully reconstruct the scene in such a way that I believe it's possible to better understand what may have occurred. So let's go back and look at verse 11 again. Paul says, But when Cephas, also known as Peter, he came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now there are two things I want to point out in verse 11 that I think are important for us to understand before moving on. Here's the first one. This phrase, when when Cephas or Peter came to to Antioch, we shouldn't interpret that phrase as meaning as soon as he got there, I sat him down. We we shouldn't read it at that. If anything, the more we reflect on this passage, it appears that this this rebuke actually took place sometime after Peter had been there for a while. It wasn't an immediate thing. It wasn't like Peter showed up and that night at dinner, Paul says, uh, this is going to be uncomfortable, but we, I, I, I need to address. I need to address the group and I need to address you, Peter. Here's the second thing I, I think it's worth pointing out. That word condemned at the end of verse 11, we must not confuse that word condemned with the word accursed from verse 11. It's not the same thing. Peter's not being accused of preaching a false gospel. Those who preach a false gospel, Paul says, are a curse. He's not accusing Peter of that at all. He's saying he is condemned. What does that mean? I think that phrase could be better, or that word could be better translated, he's guilty before God. 
Peter has done something wrong that Paul's not just saying, I think is wrong. It's wrong. It was sinful. It's clearly sinful. And it, it was harmful. Therefore, Paul could not ignore what happened, and he had to address it. So what happened? Look at verse 12, the beginning of verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, being Peter, was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Notice what's taking place. Do you notice the before and after? Before this was happening, after this took place. Now, we're not told how long Peter was in Antioch before these messengers from James arrived. But we are informed that before they came, whether it was for a few days, a few weeks, here's what was happening. When Peter got to Antioch, he had no concerns about eating certain foods that he would have once considered unclean according to Jewish customs in Old Testament law. He has no concerns with that. When he gets to Antioch, he sits down and he has fellowship with other Gentiles and eats their food. And not only does Peter not appear to have any concerns about eating certain foods he would have once called unclean, he has no concerns eating with people he would have once considered unclean, Gentiles. And we know this from Acts chapter 10. So go back later and read Acts chapter 10 because I believe the letter of Galatians was written after Acts chapter 10 and 11. If you remember the story of Peter and Cornelius and God revealed to Peter, not only was it okay to eat with Gentiles, but what he used to call unclean, God says, I no longer call unclean. And it changed Peter's mindset. Now, even though Peter's beliefs had changed, Hadn't changed, it appears, according to Paul, Peter's behavior changed. So though his beliefs hadn't changed, all of a sudden his behavior changed, and it changed once these messengers from Jerusalem arrived. They were sent by James, which leads to this question. Who were these messengers? Who were these men from James? And what kind of message could they have brought? that would have altered Peter's behavior towards these Gentiles? Well, the answer is found at the end of verse 12. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, I want to follow in the footsteps of other trusted commentators on Galatians who would propose when we read verse 12, that we see these two groups not as identical, but as separate. This is an important way. If, if, if you see the men from James as the circumcision party that they feared, you will read this passage differently. I follow those who have studied Galatians intently and would say, these are two separate groups. These are two separate groups. There is those from James and there is the circumcision party. And when you separate the two, we can possibly reconstruct what might have happened. So here's what I want to do. I want to 
lean on one of these New Testament scholars and tell you in his own words how he would, and he's not the only one, say this most likely is what happened. Now, when he's saying most likely, a number of things we're not going to have time to unpack. First of all, we know a lot of things going on historically that inform this passage. And we know a lot of things from the book of Acts that are helping inform this. So they're not just speculating, though we can't say for sure. Here's most likely what happened. These men from James were likely emissaries, messengers sent by the leader of the Jerusalem church. The most likely scenario is that James sent them with news of a recent outbreak of violent persecution by Jewish authorities. So that's who the circumcision party are. It's speaking of not of people who believe in Christ, but still believe in church. This is unbelievers in Jerusalem who can't stand Christians like Paul used to be a part of. And report has now made it to Peter in Antioch from these messengers from James about an outbreak of violent persecution by Jewish authorities. He goes on to say that it intensified this Outbreak intensified by reports that Peter regularly broke the kosher laws and ate with Gentiles. Through these messengers, James asked Peter to exercise restraint in his association with Gentiles and perhaps even to resume observance of the kosher laws as a way of easing the intense persecution the Jerusalem church was was experiencing and perhaps out of concern for the effectiveness of ongoing outreach to Jews, of which Peter was a key leader. So do you see what happened, or what could have happened? Peter, for however long, has been there in Antioch. He's been eating foods that he would no longer consider unclean. He's eating with these Gentiles. He totally believes everything that Paul's saying, that justification is by faith alone, that, 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 that makes a person right before God and justified before God. And he's sitting there, and he's eating with them. And then all of a sudden, some leaders from the Jerusalem church come and say, Peter, we need to inform you. Since you've been here, word has gotten back that you're in Antioch eating unclean foods, eating with Gentiles, and the persecution we've experienced, the volume's been turned up. It has caused us a great pain and difficulty because of what you're doing. Is there any way you, you maybe could alter some of the things you're doing while you're there in Antioch? Now, if this were the scenario that took place, can you see why Peter would have feared the circumcision party? Could, can't you relate? Can't you understand why he would have felt this way? See, Peter is not removing himself from eating with Gentiles simply because some other Jews show up and he's, he's in fear of his reputation. No, he's concerned about the welfare of other brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, brothers and sisters he knows by name and loves. And not only is he concerned with them, he's concerned about the impact his actions will have on ongoing mission in Jerusalem. He's deeply concerned about this. Now look back at verse 12. Because he's concerned, look what he does. It says he draws back and he separates himself. You know what that gives us the impression? 
that Peter stopped associating with Gentiles like he had before. Don't just read this as as a, he didn't eat with them. The language is very strong. To draw back and to separate means most likely he stopped associating with Gentiles while he was there in Antioch. And his reason for doing that was fear. Fear. Now put yourself in Peter's shoes for a moment. Can't you see why fear would have caused him to respond the way he did? Would you or I have done anything different? We would have probably heard the same report and went, oh my. Wow, okay, I don't, I don't, want, I don't, I don't want my brothers and sisters whom I love to be persecuted. I, I, I better alter my behavior. But be aware of this, church. Fear even when it seems rational, even when it feels natural, and even when it may appear justifiable, it can still be sinful. Now hear what I am saying and not what I'm not saying. I didn't say that all fear is always sinful. There are times when fear is natural, it's rational, and it's justifiable. You see your little child running out in the street and you see a car coming in really fast. There's a reason to be afraid. That's not sinful. But we must be careful to think, well, it's natural. It's rational. And it's justifiable, so therefore it can't be wrong. No. Peter's fear was sinful. It was sinful. Why? Because Peter was motivated by fear instead of faith. And that led him to make a bad decision. And that led to a sinful response. He withdrew from these Gentiles. Though we can relate, though we can say, I don't know if I'd do anything different, what he did was wrong. It was sinful. But that's not all. Through this narrative, we we learn another valuable lesson for life. And it's this. Sometimes good intentions don't always lead to good decisions. Are we sometimes thinking, well, my intentions were good? High five? Okay, good. (laughs) But just because our intentions are good doesn't mean good intentions always lead to good decisions. Listen, Peter's intentions might have been good, but his actions were nothing short of hypocrisy. And due to his role, his decisions influenced many others negatively. Look back at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So we don't just feel like we're picking on Peter. Peter wasn't alone in the sin of hypocrisy. We're told by Paul that it appears that all the other Jewish Christians in Antioch, including Barnabas, Paul's right hand man, they All did the same thing. Once they heard this report, not only was it Peter who did this, they all said, you know what, for the sake of our brothers in Jerusalem, I think we're just, you know, we love you guys, your brothers and sisters in Jesus, but I think we're going to stay over here. 
They all did this. And Paul levels this charge against them. He said, that's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Now, in order to think carefully about what made their actions hypocritical, we must do a number of things. The first thing we must understand is, what does this word hypocrisy mean? It means to play act. To play act. So, Paul makes this accusation against Peter and Barnabas and the other Jewish Christians that they're play acting. What does he mean by that? He's saying to them that they, what they're doing was not authentic. It was inconsistent with what they believed. See, their hypocrisy isn't seen in the fact that they once were doing this and now they're not. That doesn't make them a hypocrite. They might have been doing this because they thought it was right, and now they think it's wrong. That doesn't make somebody a hypocrite. That just means they changed their beliefs. It's not the change of action that made them a hypocrite. It's that what they were doing over here was inconsistent with what they believed. If you asked them, what do you believe? They would have said one thing, but you watched their actions, and it said another. See, here's where their hypocrisy comes into play. Had you asked Peter or Barnabas or any of those other Jewish Christians in Antioch, if they thought their Gentile brothers and sisters had to observe the law of Moses in order to be justified or seen as the people of God, I believe from what we see in the book of Acts and never told that Peter changed his mind, Peter would say emphatically, no, never. They don't have to do anything like that. Yet... Peter and Barnabas and others, their actions were inconsistent with their beliefs about the gospel. What they say they believe was inconsistent with how they were living and how they were acting. And Peter said, Paul, Paul is about to tell Peter, listen, brothers, even if you have good intentions, it's sin. And it's hypocrisy to do that. So let's look at Paul's confrontation now. Point two. Look at verse 14. Paul now tells us what exactly happened when he confronted Peter. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you... Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Think about what, what Paul's doing here. Because of Peter's role as a leader and as an apostle and the impact his actions had on so many, though he wasn't the, the, the lone one, because of his role, it was not only wise, it was necessary for Paul to correct him in front of everyone. But notice what verse 11 said he did. He corrected him to his face, not behind his back. And he didn't just do so to, to correct Peter. He did so for the good of the entire church that was following Peter's example. So Paul was careful, and he wasn't just doing this to be malicious. He did it because something was at stake. Had they continued to do this, though they, their beliefs hadn't changed what they were doing was communicating something that was dangerous and detrimental 
You see, what was inadvertently happening was a separation in the church between Jews and Gentiles. And a number of commentators made this point, and I, and I think it's spot on, because if we look throughout the New Testament, where does the Lord's Supper often get taken? Where does it usually get administered? In the context of a meal. So if they've withdrawn themselves from eating with Gentiles, it's a good possibility they're no longer taking the Lord's Supper with them. And think about what that's communicating. Think about what that's doing. That's excluding people from the body of Christ that belong to the body of Christ. Now can you see why Paul would confront Peter? And listen to what he says to him. Beginning of verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's the problem. The problem wasn't that their belief changed. Their, their problem wasn't that their belief was wrong. Their problem was the fact that what they say with their mouth, their, their, their actions are preaching a different message. That's the problem. See, the problem that, that Paul states here is that they were not living in light of the gospel. So let's go back to that opening statement again. The truth of the gospel must dictate and motivate the way we live our lives. And guess what Peter and Barnabas and all those other believers in that moment were doing? They were not letting the truth of the gospel dictate and motivate. They were letting fear. Though they believed the gospel, though they held to the gospel, they were allowing something else besides the message of the gospel to dictate and motivate how they responded. See, the great error that was committed by Peter and others in Antioch was the fact that their actions and decisions were not being motivated by the gospel. It was fear of persecution that caused them to act hypocritically. This struck me this week. I was thinking about this passage, coming into it, already thinking I really understood kind of the scenario that was going on and realizing, man, I, I, I don't understand this as well as, as I thought. And one of the things that really struck me is this fact. Their good intentions did not prevent them from bad application. Just because I have good intentions doesn't mean I'm not going to have bad application. We, we need more than just good intentions. Because left to good intentions, Peter and others, they sinned. And Paul tells them how they sinned. That their actions, not their mouths, preach a false gospel. That's initially what he's saying in the second half of verse 14. He says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You hear what Paul's saying? Do you see what you're doing and the impact of what you're doing and that it's having on other people? With your mouth, you may not be like the, the, the false teachers in Galatia who are preaching a false gospel and a curse, but brothers, you are still condemned because your actions are not, in, are not consistent with the message you believe. Paul was initially saying to Peter and those, brothers, 
you, you've been living like a Gentile for some time now. But yet your recent actions of separating from Gentiles has made a loud statement. Here's what your, your removal from eating and having fellowship with Gentiles is telling them. It's led others to believe that Gentiles must become like a Jew to have fellowship with the body of Christ. If you were to ask Peter, do you believe that? He would say, absolutely not. Then what you're doing is saying that, Peter. No matter just what's coming out of your mouth, what you're doing is saying that loudly. He's saying to these who are listening, you're saying to these people with your actions, if you come to Christ, but you don't observe the law of Moses, then you're second class citizens in the kingdom of God. That's exactly what he's saying. That's what they're doing, not with their mouths with their actions. Now, in verses 15 through 21, Paul will unpack the message of the gospel that he is going to spend then the rest of the book just articulating. What is this message of the gospel? Here's what I want to do with the time we have remaining. I want us to consider how to keep in step with the truth of the gospel. So that we don't communicate with our actions something we would never want to communicate. How do we not do the same thing that these others in Antioch did? And once again, and and I know this is not our posture, but we, we, we are tempted in many ways. Brothers and sisters, we must not read this passage and think, man, I would never be like Peter, Barnabas, and all those other Jewish Christians. Pride goes before the fall. We are tempted as they are. Where are we tempted to say with our actions something we would never let come out of our mouths? That would actually communicate something false about God and the gospel. So how do we keep in step with the truth of the gospel? I I, want to mention three ways in closing. Three ways to apply gospel truth. Here's the first one. Connect gospel truth to all of life. Connect gospel truth to all of life. Now, this step involves thinking carefully about how the truths of the gospel connect to various situations we're facing. That's what we're doing in this first step. We're thinking, okay, what are the truths of the gospel and how do they dictate and motivate the actions and the decisions I make? Now, let's just be really honest. Maybe the reason we find that to be hard is because how often do we even do that? When's the last time we were about to respond to a major situation and our thoughts were, okay, what are the truths of the gospel and how would the gospel then inform this decision? At best, we said, well, my intentions are good. But good intentions don't prevent us from bad application. We must, we must think, how does the gospel inform this action I'm about to do? But even if we were to stop and consider doing that, you may be thinking, okay, what does that look like? Well, let me, let me give you, I hope, a helpful tool. It's been helpful for me over the years. I'm borrowing this from a pastor named Mike Bullmore. If, if you would imagine with me three concentric circles, 
Okay, so there's one in the center, one outside, and then the, the last circle surrounding those other two. That, that center circle, we're going to call the gospel. That's going back to week one. What, what is the gospel? We said the gospel is what God has done, period. It's not just what we are to do. The gospel is about what God has done in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's that center circle. We got to get that right. That third circle, that outer circle, we're going to call gospel application. That's, that's the truth of the gospel being lived out in our life. Wow, man, how do we bridge that gap? The middle circle. We're going to call those gospel truths, gospel doctrines. See, there's the gospel. There's the way we live out the gospel. But the thing that connects the two We'll call gospel truths. What are gospel truths? They're the effects of the gospel. Justification by faith alone. Union with Christ. Our understanding of what it means to be adopted by God. The nature of sanctification. What it means to be spirit-filled and spirit-led. And you know all those topics I just mentioned? That's what Galatians is going to keep talking about. And you know what you and I are tempted when we hear terms like this, adoption, union with Christ, justification by faith alone? Okay, I'm sure those are really important in some theological sphere. I'm glad we got them right. Thank God for the reformers that they got that right. I know it matters, but does that really affect the way I live? And the answer is yes. The reason we can't live out the gospel in our lives is because we don't better understand gospel truth. See, failing to understand gospel truth will hinder us from applying the message of the gospel to our life. Just know that the rest of the letter of Galatians will unpack these gospel truths. And like I said two weeks ago, I want to appeal to you again. Here's going to be the temptation. Teenagers, young people, listen. Here's going to be the temptation. We are going to get into some deep water of theological topics because Paul's going to have to go there. And it's going to be real tempting to think, what does this have to do with me? What is justification and union with Christ and all these things? Everything. Everything. If you don't get these, you are on the path to saying one thing with your mouth and doing one, uh, another thing with your actions. We all are. So listen up. Lean forward. And think, okay, what can I learn? Here's the second thing. Not only must we connect gospel truths to all of life, we must question our, how our actions will represent the gospel to others. How will our actions be perceived by others? Look at the end of verse 14. I, I intentionally didn't mention this part till now. Notice what Peter, what Paul said to Peter, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Do you know where else Paul said that earlier in this letter? Chapter 2, verse 3. When he had Titus, a Gentile, with him, and he goes to Jerusalem, and there's some who've come in who've spied out their freedom, and they tried to force Titus to experience the sign of the old covenant even though he wasn't required to do that. 
In both of these examples, whether it's the example with Titus or here in what was taking place in Antioch. Think about what's occurring. Gentiles were being pressured to do something that God was not requiring of them. One was taking place intentionally. Those who were saying to Paul and Titus, yeah, that guy must be circumcised in order to be right with God. Of course. They were doing it intentionally. Peter and Barnabas and the rest of the Christians were never saying that. But yet, unintentionally, that's what they were communicating. You must do this. They were forcing them. So here's the question we must ask ourselves. Is my response to a particular situation, is it communicating a message about God and his grace that isn't true? And is my way of acting pressuring people to conform to a certain standard that God doesn't require of? What I would never say with my mouth, yes, you have to do that to be a good Christian. My actions go, well, actually, that's what good Christians do. How often do we stop and think about that? Is my actions just for my benefit or my actions for me to communicate something about God and the gospel that are true? Here's the third and final thing. Not only must we connect gospel truth to our life, question how our actions will represent the gospel to others, we must align our motives with the message of the gospel. We must align our motives with the message of the gospel. I I hope you know this from reading throughout Scripture. The Bible reveals to us far more than just theology, and the Bible reveals to us far more than just practical steps to take for godly living. One of the things that makes the Bible such a living book, outside of the fact that God speaks to it, is the Bible addresses the inner person. It addresses the inner workings of the heart, including our motives. Page after page after page after page from Genesis to Revelation. The ultimate question that's being asked all throughout Scripture is why do people do what they do? Not just here's what you need to believe about God and here's how you live it out. What's the motives of your heart? What's the motives? What's motivating you? So Here's a question I would encourage you to ask yourself regularly as you think about how to how to make the gospel being lived out in your life. How much time do you spend evaluating your motives before you respond to a situation? I don't mean your intentions. Well, I meant well. How often do you say, is what I'm about to say and what I'm about to do, does it reflect the heart of Christ? Not, well, I think it's justifiable for me to do this. How often do we actually evaluate our motives? Well, listen, it's not just enough to evaluate our motives. We we must align our motives with the heart of Christ. Let me state it this way. Godly affection creates good application. Do you know why you and I can be so harsh, critical, impatient, and unforgiving because our affection for God is weak. 
That's why. We struggle with how we treat others because our affection for God is weak. So I want to encourage each person here to view this study of Galatians as a God-ordained opportunity, not only to grow in our knowledge of grace, but to grow in our affections for the God of grace. Can I say that again? Here's why God has us going through the letter of Galatians. Not only so that we can grow in our knowledge of the God of grace, but we can grow in our affections for the God of grace. See, it's only when our affections grow and we're living out of the good of what God has done for us that it will, it will inform the way we respond in every situation. Friends, may we all learn to express our love for God more as we either discover or rediscover His great love for us. May, may we be people who express our love for God more as we either discover or rediscover His great love for us. And as we do, you know what's going to happen? That great love will dictate and motivate the way we live our lives. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that on our best days, our motives and our intentions are still tainted with sin. Therefore, we need your help. This is one of those messages, Lord, I am keenly aware of my own heart and I am aware for those, Lord, you are calling me to, to minister to today that, Lord, what we would like to do and what we ought to do. Sometimes there is a, a massive gulf between those. Lord, we, we, we are complicated. We are sinful. Lord, we can struggle. And so we ask for your help. Spirit of God, would you help us to be the kind of people who don't just say one thing with our mouths, but say something opposite with our behavior. But may we be people who the gospel dictates and motivates the way we act, the way we talk, the way we live, the way we treat others. And Father, when we fail to do that, convict us and give us the humility to respond to that conviction. And then, Lord, help us run to the Savior who died for our sin. Lord, thank you for your word. We ask now that you would help us to apply the gospel to all of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.